Welcome to the Halloween special of Shipwreck Sunday, where we investigate disasters at sea and the impact that they have on the world today, but in a more spooky way. My name is Eleanor. Today we will be discussing the sinking of Mary Celeste and the paranormal and unbelievable stories that surround her. Before we dive in, I must inform you. This story does include details of a maritime disaster resulting in the loss of a vessel, instances of the paranormal, racism, and death that may be disturbing to some audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Please note before I begin that I am not a mariner or expert in the field of maritime history, but I have done my research and will present the information as I understand it and with accurate nautical terminology. In today's episode, I will be including the basics of nautical terminology in the description for anyone who needs it. Today there will be some conspiracies, myths, and false histories I discuss. I will be transparent when I reach these falsehoods. Happy Halloween, shipwreckers! There's a lot of paranormal spookiness having to do with the Mary Celeste, but she also has a rich history. She started off as Amazon, a two-masted sailing vessel built by Joshua Dewis in the small town of Spencer's Island in Nova Scotia, being registered in Parsboro on June 10, 1861. She was constructed of locally sourced timber, being rigged as a brigantine. She was carvel-built, meaning her whole planking was flush as opposed to overlapping. Traditionally, most sailing ships like Mary Celeste are clinker-built, with their planks overlapping slightly and being fastened together by caulking sealant. Judging by her registration documents, Amazon, as she was named at the time, was 99.3 feet long, had a beam of 25.5 feet wide, and a depth of 11.7 feet. She displaced 198.42 gross tons, being a relatively small vessel. She was owned by nine people joined together by what is called a consortium, which is an association typically of several business companies. This consortium was led by builder Joshua Dewis, with the ship's first master, Captain Robert McClellan, being among the co-owners. Amazon left for her maiden voyage in June of 1861, sailing to five islands in Colchester County, Nova Scotia, on the north shore of Minas Basin, and here she took on a cargo of timber for passage across the Atlantic Ocean to London, England. Captain McClellan supervised the loading of the ship's cargo, but sadly got sick after that, his condition worsening quickly. Amazon returned to Spencer's Island, McClellan sadly dying of his illness on June 19, 1861. Captain John Nutting Parker took the helm from here and continued the voyage out to London across the Atlantic. Unfortunately, Amazon would run into more problems. She collided with fishing equipment scattered about the Narrows off Eastport, Maine in the United States on her way to London, and after leaving the UK, she ran into and sank a brig in the English Channel. This is not a good maiden voyage to start her career off with. Captain Parker was in command of Amazon for two years, where she worked mainly in the West Indies trade routes. In November 1861, she crossed the Atlantic from Canada to France and was the subject of a painting while in Marseilles, though it's hotly debated who painted her. It was possibly painted by Honoré de Pellegrin of Marseilles School, and he was well known for his maritime paintings. In 1863, Captain Parker passed the torch on to William Thompson, and he commanded Amazon until 1867. With Thompson in charge, there were no incidents, and is commonly referred to her quiet years. In October of 1867, Amazon was driven ashore in a store at Cape Breton Island, Nova Scotia, and she was so heavily damaged due to this that her owners quite literally gave up on her, and she was left there as a wreck, being battered by the waves as they crashed around her on the shore. But don't worry, this isn't the end of her story. 
On October 15, 1867, Alexander McBean, a derelict from Glace Bay, Nova Scotia, acquired the Amazon, and here is where she became the ship we know her to be. Within a month of acquiring her, McBean sold her wreck to a local businessman of an unknown name who sold the ship to Richard W. Haynes in November of 1868. Haynes was an American mariner from New York, and he paid $1,750, spending a whopping $8,880.25, restoring her to her former glory. He would captain her himself and registered her with the Collector of Customs in New York as an American vessel by the name Mary Celeste in December of 1868, forever changing the identity of the vessel. Due to his debts, the ship was claimed by Haynes' creditors in October of 1869 and sold to a New York consortium led by James H. Winchester. There was a revolving door of players in this consortium over the next three years, but Winchester remained a constant, always having at least half a share. During this period, there were no records of Mary Celeste's trade activities, or if there were, historians have been unable to recover them. Early on in 1872, she received $10,000 worth of refits, enlarging the ship greatly. Her length changed from 99.3 feet to 103 feet long. Her beam changed from 25.5 feet wide to 25.7 feet wide, and her depth increased from 11.7 feet to 16.2 feet tall. A second debt was added during the refit, with the inspector's report namely referring to extensions to the poop deck, as well as a replacement of many old timbers and new transoms. Transoms are the vertical reinforcements which strengthens the stern of a boat, with the flat termination of the stern being typically above the waterline. All this work also upped the ship's tonnage from 198.42 gross tons to 282.28 gross tons. As of October 29, 1872, the 12 shares owned by the consortium were split with Winchester owning six, two minor investors each holding one share apiece, and the ship's newest captain, Benjamin Spooner Briggs, holding four shares. Briggs was a special captain for her, and if you have the time, you should look into his life. It's pretty interesting. But for this episode, we're going to skip that for now. Maybe in a future episode, we will revisit Captain Briggs' story. At Pier 50 on the East River in New York City on October 20th, 1872, Captain Briggs supervised with a careful eye as the ship's cargo was loaded, 1,701 barrels of alcohol. A week later, his wife and baby daughter would join him on the ship. On Sunday, November 3rd, he penned a letter to his mother stating his intentions to depart on Tuesday stating in the letter that, quote, our vessel is in beautiful trim, and I hope we shall have a fine passage. And on that Tuesday morning on November 5th, they did just as Captain Briggs had planned, leaving Pier 50 with Briggs, his wife and daughter, and a crew of seven other men. From there, they moved to New York Harbor, the weather being just shifty enough for Briggs to decide to wait for the weather to clear up, anchoring just off Staten Island. There, his wife Sarah sent a letter to her mother-in-law saying, quote, Tell Arthur I make great dependence on the letters I shall get from him, and will try to remember anything that happens on the voyage which would be pleased to hear. Arthur was her son, who was not joining them for the voyage. After two days' birth in New York Harbor, the foul weather dissipated, and Mary Celeste set out into the Atlantic Ocean. If you're wondering when the spookiness happens, don't worry, we're getting there. This is just the beginning of that. Before we get there, I have to lay the scene just a bit. There is a second ship in this tale, and her perspective is important. That ship is the Canadian brigantine De Gratia that was awaiting cargo in nearby Hoboken, New Jersey, while Mary Celeste was preparing for her voyage. 
De Gratia was to take a shipment of petroleum to Genoa via Gibraltar. Captain David Morehouse and first mate Oliver DeVoe were not only native Nova Scotians, but also highly experienced and incredibly well-respected seafarers. Captain Briggs of the Mary Celeste and Morehouse of the De Gratia shared a few common interests, and some writers believe they knew each other, even if the relationship was only surface-level acquaintances. Other accounts assert they were much closer than that, even having dined together the evening before Mary Celeste's departure, but there's limited evidence for this based upon a recollection of Morehouse's widow 50 years after the incident we are about to cover. De Gratia departed Hoboken for Genoa on November 15, 1872, following the same general route that Mary Celeste was on, only eight days behind. De Gratia reached a point midway between the Azores and the coast of Portugal at 1 p.m. on Wednesday, December 4, 1872, land time. This means it would be Thursday, December 5, sea time. Captain Morehouse's shoes tapped against the wooden deck of his ship as he came up and the helmsman, or the person who steers the ship using commands given by the captain, reported seeing a vessel six miles in the distance bobbing unsteadily toward De Gratia. The ship in the distance was moving erratically, and because of this and the odd set of her sails, Morehouse started to suspect that something was not right with the vessel he was looking at, a pit forming in his stomach. As they drew closer to the vessel, he noticed no one on deck, and he received no reply to any of his signaling. From there, he sent first mate DeVoe and second mate John Wright in a ship's boat to investigate. As DeVoe and Wright bobbed up to the ship, they looked up at the stern and caught the name of the vessel splashed across the side of it. It was Mary Celeste. But why was she seemingly abandoned? Where was her crew? Where was her captain and his family? The duo climbed aboard the vessel hoping to find some answers, finding the ship completely devoid of life. The sails were partly set and in rough condition, some even just missing altogether, and a lot of the rigging looked like it had been damaged, ropes hanging loosely over the sides and flapping in the wind. The main hatch cover was secure, but the fore and lazarette hatches were open, their covers laying next to the openings on the deck. The ship's single lifeboat was a small yawl, which is like a sailing vessel with y'all referring to either the type of rigging, type of hull, or the purpose that the vessel holds. It had been stored by the main hatch, but was curiously missing, and the binnacle holding the ship's compass had shifted and the glass covering it was broken. In the hold, the pair found about 3.5 feet of standing water, which is significant, but not necessarily alarming given the size of Mary Celeste. On the deck, the pair also found a makeshift sounding rod, which is a device used to measure the amount of water in the hold. In the first mate's cabin on Mary Celeste, DeVoe and Wright found the daily log, its last entry dated at 8 a.m. on November 25th, nine days earlier. It recorded Mary Celeste's position off Santa Maria Island in the Azores, nearly 400 nautical miles from where she was now. This puzzled the pair and they continued searching, finding the cabin interiors wet and untidy from water that had seeped in through the doorways and skylights, but otherwise everything looked reasonably normal. In Captain Briggs's cabin, they found personal items everywhere, including a sheathed sword under his bed, but curiously much of the ship's papers were missing along with the captain's navigational tools. Galley equipment was still neatly organized and put away. There wasn't any food prepared or half prepared, but instead it was in stores and there was no obvious signs for why the ship was abandoned. No signs of fire, violence, or that the ship was sinking. All they knew was the lifeboat was missing and the entirety of the crew aboard Mary Celeste was gone. When DeVoe and Wright returned to De Gratia, 
They told Captain Morehouse, Now before you roll your eyes at this next part, just keep in mind that 1872 was a very different time. And so if an abandoned vessel like this one could be successfully taken ashore, whoever found it could get a lot of money for the salvage. Seeing dollar signs, they decided to tow Mary Celeste the 600 nautical miles into Gibraltar. Morehouse divided his crew of eight, with himself and four crewmen on his ship, and DeVoe and two others on the Mary Celeste. Although the weather was calm, both ships were undercrewed and it slowed the progress dramatically. The crew of De Gratia reached Gibraltar on December 12th, with Mary Celeste arriving the following morning due to a heavy fog she encountered. Immediately, the ship was impounded by the Admiralty Court to prepare for salvage hearings. These salvage court hearings commenced in Gibraltar on December 17, 1872, under Sir James Cochrane, who was the Chief Justice of Gibraltar. The hearing was conducted by Attorney General of Gibraltar and Advocate General and Proctor for the Queen in her Office of Admiralty, Frederick Solly Flood, and he was described later by a historian of the Mary Celeste Affair as a man, quote, whose arrogance and pomposity were inversely proportional to his IQ, and as, quote, the sort of man who, once he had made up his mind about something, couldn't be shifted. And this is who was overseeing the inquiry into Mary Celeste. Just fantastic news. Due to the testimonies from Wright and DeVoe, Flood did have his mind shifted to one conclusion and one conclusion only. A crime had to have been committed aboard Mary Celeste and alcohol, which she was transporting, had to be involved. To be fair, that's entirely possible. But given I told you what those two saw earlier, and there was no sign of a scuffle, it's still a bit of a stretch to immediately leap to this conclusion and stay there. Flood ordered an examination of Mary Celeste on December 23, 1872, being carried out by surveyor of shipping John Austin with the assistance of a diver by the name of Ricardo Portunato. During his examination, John Austin reported seeing cuts on each side of the bow into the wood, which he presumed was caused by some sort of sharp instrument, and he found possible traces of blood on the captain's sword. In his report, he emphasized that he did not see any signs of the ship being struck by bad weather, with his evidence being a vial of sewing machine oil still sitting upright, though nobody acknowledged it could have been set upright again before abandoning ship. In Ricardo Potonato's report on the hull, he concluded that the ship had not been involved in a collision or run aground, with a further inspection initially seeming to point toward both Austin and Portunato as being correct. During this inspection, peculiar stains on the ship's rails appeared to be blood, and there was a deep cut in one of the railings possibly done by an axe. Flood's suspicions of foul play were immediately confirmed for him at this point, but hold your horses, dear listeners, it only gets more interesting from here. On January 22, 1873, he sent the reports to the Board of Trade in London, tacking on his own theory that the crew had gotten drunk of their alcoholic cargo and murderous mayhem ensued. The theory is after the crew murdered the Briggs family and the ship's officers, they would take the sword and slice at the bow to simulate a collision before fleeing in the yawl, where it is unknown what happened. Because of this suspicion, which is unconfirmed just to reaffirm, Flood assumed Captain Morehouse and the crew of the De Gratia were hiding something, namely the theory that Mary Celeste had been abandoned in a more easterly location than where it was, and that the ship's log had been faked. Flood just couldn't imagine Mary Celeste drifting the distance she did without her crew. Though the evidence found in Gibraltar did not support Flood's suspicions, there were still theories on foul play being the reason the ship was deserted. 
Even insurance fraud was a possibility, according to Flood and some newspaper reports, though this suspicion was rather brief. This was based upon the idea that Winchester had vastly overinsured Mary Celeste, but he was able to refute these allegations and none of the insurance companies ever looked into the policies in place. A theory that doesn't hold any water but needs to be mentioned is a theory posed by a 1931 article in the Quarterly Review stating that Captain Morehouse laid in waiting for Mary Celeste at Gibraltar. But this is impossible since De Gratia was not only a slower ship than Mary Celeste, but departed eight days after her. There's also the theory that Morehouse and Briggs planned to split the salvage and insurance money, with Briggs disappearing to make this more believable. But one has to ask, why would Captain Briggs leave behind his son if he planned on disappearing forever? It just doesn't make any sense. Others claimed that Riffian pirates were to blame, but the pirates would have looted the ship and the Mary Celeste seemed in order. To me, foul play doesn't fit the narrative. There's another theory that there was an explosion and they left the ship quickly, and this is evident by the fact that the ropes to the lifeboat that were left were cut rather than unfastened. In the ship's logs, there were mentions of rumblings and small explosions from the cargo hold. Cargo loads with petroleum would naturally give off explosive gas, and it was common for people to smoke indoors back then, so that could possibly make sense. It would also explain the fact that the top covering of one of the hatches was blown off, but with the ship looking relatively normal, that just doesn't add up for me either. Yet another theory is that there was some sort of natural disaster phenomena that caused the sudden abandonment. DeVoe theorized that it was a false sounding due to the sounding rod found on the deck, and they assumed that the ship was sinking due to a malfunction with the pumps or something of that sort and fled. If the water spout was struck or damaged in a storm, it would explain the raggedy sails and the amount of standing water in the ship, and it would also affect the barometric pressure generated by the spout with water driving up from the bilges into the pumps, causing the crew to think that they were taking on more water than they thought. Other theories were a submarine earthquake, especially if it caused an explosion, since this intense movement could upset the ship's cargo and make it explosively dangerous. After a 2006 experiment replicating these conditions, this was also found to be unlikely. So what happened to Mary Celeste? Well, this is where things take a turn for the paranormal, unexplainable, and downright strange. Fact and fiction in the story have become so intertwined, it's hard to discern what is true and what is myth. Just keep in mind going forward, everything we're about to cover is either plain false or a conspiracy. Even seemingly reliable news sources like the Los Angeles Times were getting their facts wrong in June of 1883, claiming Mary Celeste was left with, quote, every sail was set, the tiller was latched fast, not a rope was out of place, the fire was burning in the galley, the dinner was standing untasted and scarcely cold, the log written up to the hour of her discovery. This is just blatantly false given the testimony earlier from DeVoe and Wright. The November 1906 edition of Overland Monthly and Out West Magazine reported falsely that Mary Celeste drifted off the Cape Verde Islands, which is 1,400 miles from the actual spot she was found. Strange things were told wrong about the story, saying the first met was, quote, a man named Briggs, or even that there were live chickens on board. According to many historical commentators, the most influential retelling that got the story wrong was a story in the January 1884 edition of the Cornhill Magazine that basically set the Mary Celeste as an unforgettable event in history. 
none other than a young 25-year-old surgeon named Arthur Conan Doyle wrote this piece, and it's one of his first. Conan Doyle's story, named J. Habakkuk Jepson's statement, did not adhere to facts and was, in fact, a work of fiction, one that Conan Doyle did not expect to be taken seriously. In his story, the ship was renamed to Marie Celeste, and her captain was J.W. Tibbs. In his story, the voyage was from Boston to Lisbon in 1873, with the vessel transporting passengers, with the titular Jepson among them. Just warning you, Conan Doyle is a product of his time, and so there is some racist themes and stereotypes we are about to get into, mainly the archaic stereotype that blacks hate whites or are evil. In the story, there's a fanatic named Septimus Goring with a severe hatred of white people, and he bribed members of the crew to murder Captain Tibbs, take the vessel hostage, and transport it to the shores of Western Africa. The rest of the ship's passengers are killed, except for Jepson, who possesses a magical charm that is highly regarded by Goring and his goons. Though the story was not true, the U.S. consul to Gibraltar was intrigued enough to wonder if any part of the story could possibly be true. There are a couple of other stories that are pretty similar of false witnesses giving false testimonies that were easily disproven. But damn it, it's a Halloween special and we are here for the freakiness. So let's dive into that. Chambers's journal of September 17, 1904, stated that the entire crew and Briggs's family were plucked off one by one and eaten by a giant octopus or squid, leaving the ship to bob in the waves. This was the time of sailors telling tall tales of sea monsters, and it's unsurprising this was one of their theories. As we know, giant squid are huge and can be aggressive toward people, with the Natural History Museum in London even claiming that they can reach up to 49 feet in length and are known to attack ships. The biggest reason this can't be true is because of the missing lifeboat and the captain's navigational tools missing from his cabin. Some even lean into the paranormal, with an undated edition of the British Journal of Astrology describing Mary Celeste to be, quote, a mystical experience connecting it to the Great Pyramid of Giza, the British-Israel movement, and even the lost civilization of Atlantis. Even some claim that her crew was lost in the Bermuda Triangle, though she was found nowhere near it and never ventured there on her final voyage. Basically, the theory is the crew traveled to a different parallel universe, dimension, or different plane of existence, or that they ended up wherever the city of Atlantis is. This is highly unlikely, but so interesting and strange all the same. There's even conspiracies that a UFO appeared in the sky above the ship in a flying saucer and beamed all of the crew and passengers up into the spaceship, flying away into the night and leaving us all to wonder what happened. Please remember that these are merely myths and fantasies people have created, and we are sharing them just because they are interesting and not to further perpetuate lies. The crew of Mary Celeste were real people, and it's tragic that they were lost. Mary Celeste did go on to have a career after she left Genoa on June 26, 1873, but she was cursed for many, and she never had a successful career. She would be wrecked intentionally on a coral reef, the Rocklawa Bank near Haiti, on January 3, 1885, for an insurance payout that never happened, and she has remained there ever since. Only a few bits of timber and metal artifacts were salvaged, with the rest of the wreck being lost in the coral. There she remains, part of the reef now. Mary Celeste isn't the only ship with her crew strangely disappearing, but she is certainly one of the more famous ones. 
This episode hopes to commemorate the memories of everyone lost on the Mary Celeste, and hopefully one day we learn the truth of what happened to her crew. This episode also helps to discuss the theories and conspiracies behind this mystery so we may understand what is fact and what is fiction. Happy Halloween, dear listeners. Thank you for tuning into this special edition of Shipwreck Sunday. If you liked this episode and are listening on YouTube, please give us a like, leave us a comment, and subscribe to our channel. If you liked this episode and are listening on Spotify, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music, or another podcast service, please subscribe for more content and leave us a five-star review as it does help us reach more listeners like you. If you have any ships you'd like us to cover, please leave us a comment and we'll put it on our schedule. Check out Speed Force Media on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at ShipwreckSunday. Tune in this Sunday for the story of SS Justicia, a ship operated by the White Star Line and sunk off the coast of Ireland. Have a great week, have a safe and happy Halloween, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.